Grace be unto you and peace from him which is and which was and which is to come, and from the seven spirits which are before his throne, and from Jesus Christ who is the faithful witness and the first begotten of the dead, and the prince of the kings of the earth, unto him that loved us and washed us from our sins in his own blood, and has made us kings and priests unto God and his Father, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. I love those words. He loved us and he washed us from our sins in his own blood. We certainly have a lot to be thankful for. It's been a blessing to be here this morning. Thank you, Alan, for that devotional. I love that story as well. Where Peter and John are so taken by what they have seen and witnessed that there's nothing stopping them. Thank you for that um, Sunday school lesson as well. All you who taught, Don taught here in the adult class. Appreciated that uh, definition of repentance or what repentance does is that it opens up our heart for it opens up the way into our heart for God to come and work. I just appreciated that so much. I have a sermon this morning I'd like to preach. Um, I was asked to preach on the inspiration of Scripture um, a while back at another place, and um, somebody said they'd like to hear that sermon here, so I decided, well, I'll preach it here. So apologies to Sam and Lena. You might have to um, listen to some things that you heard before. But um, as it's as it usually is, is that um, the sermon preached a second time isn't the same as it was the first time anyway. So... Um, so for a text, turn to, for, or, I'm sorry, 2 Timothy 3. Also want to um, welcome everyone here. Um, Brian, it's nice to see you here this morning. I think um, your son was pretty proud of you. He made sure that I knew that you're here. So um, I'm glad you're here. God bless you for coming. 2 Timothy 3. Just want to, um, why don't we start reading in verse 10. But thou hast fully known my doctrine, manner of life, purpose, faith, long-suffering, charity, patience, persecutions, afflictions, which came unto me at Antioch, at Iconium, at Lystra. What persecutions I endured, but out of them the Lord delivered me. Yea, and all that will live godly in Christ Jesus shall suffer persecution. But evil men and seducers shall wax worse and worse, deceiving and being deceived. And then he contrasts that with what I want to use as a text this morning. But continue thou in the things which thou hast learned and hast been assured of, knowing of whom thou hast learned them, and that from a child thou hast known the holy scriptures which are able to make thee wise unto salvation through faith which is in Christ Jesus. All scripture is given by inspiration of God. And it's profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be perfect, thoroughly furnished unto all good works. So what I want to think about this morning is that the scripture, all scripture is given by inspiration of God. I'm, I'm not um, planning to preach so much on, on the text here as just on this theme of the scriptures being given by inspiration of God. If we stop and think about... Um, what Paul is saying here when he says all scripture, he's referring to the Old Testament because the, the New Testament as we have it wasn't formed yet. So the, the word scripture here is referring to the Old Testament. It's, uh, the New Testament uses this term scripture or scriptures many times, um, in referring to the Old Testament. Ro Paul uses it in Romans for whatsoever things were written aforetime were written for our learning that we through patience and comfort of the scriptures might have hope. And, uh, we saw it in Matthew, uh, 
already just in the first two chapters where often the word scripture is used referring to um, what was written in the Old Testament. But I think um, I think probably what Paul is referring to here um, also includes other writings. Um, and Peter acknowledges Paul's writings and scriptures because he wrote because Peter says that Paul wrote with the wisdom that was given that God gave him. Um, he says that some of these things are hard to be understood. But he also he says this in Second Peter three. An account that the long suffering of our Lord is salvation, even as our beloved brother Paul also, according to the wisdom that was given unto him, hath written unto you, and also in all his epistles, speaking in them of these things, in which some things are hard to be understood, which they that are unlearned and unstable rest, as they do also the other scriptures unto their own destruction. So Peter refers to Paul's writings as scripture. And while what I'm not doing this morning is defining what Scripture is. Uh, basically, we, for a working definition, what I want to say is, is, is that Scripture is referring to how God has revealed His will to us, first in the Old Testament by the Law and the Prophets, and then in the New Testament by the very person of Jesus. I think that's what we'll let that, the, the, the subject of how the Scriptures were formed and so on is, a, is an entirely different subject, and that's not what I'm talking about this morning. So it's revealed, it's revealed to us in the Old Testament by the Law and the Prophets and then in the New Testament by the very person of Jesus. Um, to back that up, I, I want to read to you Hebrews 1, the first four verses. God, who at sundry times and in diverse manners spake in time past unto the fathers by the prophets, hath in these last days spoken unto us by his Son, whom he hath appointed heir of all things, but whom also he made the world, who being the brightness of his glory and the express image of his person and upholding all things by the word of his power, when he had by himself purged our sins, sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, being made so much better than the angels, he hath by an inheritance obtained a more excellent name than they. So the the, the scriptures, as, as I want to think about them this morning, is... The Old Testament law and prophets that were anticipating and prophesying about Christ and the New Testament, um, the apostles and the um, disciples uh, reflecting on him. All scripture is given by inspiration of God. So if we think about that, first of all, it tells us what is scripture, but it also tells us about scripture. So it's both descriptive it tells us about script about scripture but it's also prescriptive and it, it tells us what is scripture and what isn't so if something isn't inspired by god it is not to be regarded as scripture now when we think about this inspiration we often think of inspiration to be um mentally stimulated or to feel something or to to be um stimulated to do something and so we're inspired but i, I want to say that this inspiration is a lot lot deeper than just a a um inspiration to to move and to act um turn to second peter this is another passage that, that is very pertinent here second peter uh one peter recounts what he saw on the Mount of Transfiguration where Moses uh, representing the law and Elijah representing the 
Old Testament prophets and Jesus in his glory are brought together. And God says at that time, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. Hear ye him, he says. So there is something happening. Happening. I think the, the, the Mount of Transfiguration is pivotal in, in how that we understand what is God's revelation for us. Because Moses and the prophets are there, but God says, listen to my son. And Peter recounts this. For we have not, this is in 2 Peter 1, starting in verse 16. For we have not followed cunningly devised fables when we made known unto you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For he received from God the Father honor and glory when there came such a voice to him from the excellent glory. This is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. And this voice which came from heaven we heard when we were with him in the holy mount. We have also a more sure word of prophecy whereunto ye do well that ye take heed as unto a light that shineth in a dark place until the day dawn and the day star arise in your hearts. Knowing this first, that no prophecy of the scripture is of any private interpretation for the prophecy came not in old time by the will of men, but holy men of God spake as they were moved by the Holy Ghost. So when it says that scripture is not of any private interpretation, it is just simply saying that this is not something that this man came up with by himself. He says that the prophecy came not in old time by the will of man. It's not a private interpretation, but holy men of God spake as they were moved by the Holy Ghost. Now, somebody mentioned here recently, was it Don in Sunday school that perhaps the most miraculous thing in Balaam's story was not that the donkey talked, but that Balaam communicated what God wanted him to say. Was that you, Don? Yeah, I I appreciated that so much. So if God can use men like Balaam and he can use men like Caiaphas who prophesied um, to the Sanhedrin that perhaps it's just right that one man dies for the sins of the people he didn't even know what he was saying so if god can use people like balaam and he can use people like caiaphas certainly he can use holy men holy men of god spake as they were moved by the holy ghost or as they were carried along by the holy ghost This is the same word when it says that they were moved by the Holy Ghost or they were carried along by the Holy Ghost. This is the same idea when Paul was on his way to Rome and they wanted to go. um, They were just going to take a simple route to Rome, but there was a a tempestuous wind uh, came up and they had a name for this storm that was called Erocladon or something like that. And this wind blew them off course. And it tells the story about how that they were driven before the wind. And so this, this word, driven, is the same word that is used here. Um, the, um, the holy men of God spake as they were driven by the Holy Ghost. And I think, if I'm not, if I'm not mistaken, I think the, the German would bear that out, that they were driven by the Holy Ghost. So this is not being moved as when you hear a beautiful piece of music and your emotions are stirred. Okay, This is something that is being propelled. It's carried along. It's, it's being uh, driven in front of a force of a wind that you can't resist. 
Justin Mortar, early Christian apologist, said this. I like these words. They received from God the knowledge that they also taught us. He's referring to the apostles. For neither by nature nor by human conception is it possible for men to know the things that are so great and divine. It is possible only by the gift that descended from above upon the holy men. These men had no need of the rhetorical arts or how to speak well or how to make a good argument. These men had no need of the rhetorical arts, nor of uttering anything in a contentious or quarrelsome manner. Rather, they presented themselves in a pure manner to the energy of the divine spirit, so that the divine plectrum, excuse me, so that the divine plectrum itself could descend from heaven and use these righteous men as an instrument like a harp or a lyre. I love the picture that that gives us, how that These men were instruments, but God reached down and he plucked these certain strings and he played the music. He played the piece. But these men were just the instrument by which God communicated. So when we think of being um, inspiration, it it talks, it's speaking about how that God hath has breathed. So when we're thinking about divine inspiration, We're thinking about that it's God breathed. All scripture is given by inspiration of God, could be translated that it's given by the breath of God. So it's coming from the mouth of God. And we have a picture of that in Revelations 1 verse 19. And he had in his right hand seven stars. And out of his mouth went a sharp two-edged sword, and his countenance was as the sun shineth in his strength. So that the sharp sword is coming out of his mouth. That is the word of God. And uh, Revelations 19 gives us that picture as well. And he was clothed with a vesture dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. And the armies which were in heaven followed him upon white horses, clothed in fine linen, white and clean. And out of his mouth goeth a sharp sword, that with it he should smite the nations. And he shall rule them with a rod of iron, and he treadeth the winepress of the fierceness and wrath of Almighty God. And he hath on his vesture and on his thigh a name written, King of kings and Lord of lords. So here we have the word of God as the person of Jesus Christ. And out of his mouth goes this sharp sword. It's the words that he is speaking is, is, uh, is what is cutting down and judging the nations. So we're thinking about God breathed and we're thinking about the breath of God. I would like to thought, I would like to think about that just a little bit and that the breath of God is first of all creative in Genesis 1. Let there be, and there was, time and time again in the account of creation. Let there be, God said, let there be light, and there was light. Let there be a firmament, and there was. Let there be dry land. Let the earth bring forth grass and herbs and trees. Let the heavens bring forth abundantly. Let the earth bring forth the living creatures. And finally, let us make man in our image. So God's word, God's the things that God says are creative. Psalm 33, verse 6. By the word of the Lord were the heavens made and all the host of them by the breath of his mouth. So the word of God, I'm sorry, the breath of God, what comes from God is creative. And secondly, it's life-giving. Genesis 2, verse 7. The Lord God formed man out of the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life and man became a living soul. It's life-giving. He breathed into his nostrils the breath of life and man became a living soul. The Spirit of God, Job says, hath made me and the breath of the Almighty hath given me life. 
And third, the breath of God is powerful. This is talking about how that the um, the children of Israel uh, went through the um, the Red Sea with the blast of thy nostrils. The waters were gathered together. The floods stood upright as a heap, and the depths were congealed in the heart of the sea. Do you see the the power of the breath of God? And I love that language, where the depths were congealed. They all turned to jello. All right, and they stood up straight. Psalms 18, verse 15. Then the channels of the water were seen, and the foundations of the world were discovered at thy rebuke, O Lord, at the blast of thy nostrils. So here's the breath of God coming, and it's coming in its force, and it's making a way for the people of God to walk. And fourth, the breath of God is pure. Psalm 19, verses 7 to 10. The law of the Lord is perfect, converting the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The statutes of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The judgments of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, yea, than much fine gold, sweeter also than honey and the honeycomb. And Psalm 119 139 to 140. My zeal hath consumed me because mine enemies have forgotten thy words. Thy word is very pure. Therefore, thy servant loveth it. So here is um, what we see coming from the word of, from the mouth of God. It's very pure. Every word of God is pure. Proverbs says he is a shield unto them that put their trust in him. So that's the, that is something that is inspired by God. It's breathed of God. It is life-giving. It is creative. It is powerful. It is pure. Now I want to ask you a question. And this has, this, uh, perhaps getting into just a little bit deeper. And that is the question, do, do we believe the Bible just because it says so? Well, I suppose we do, but let's think a little bit further. I want to I want to uh, give you a couple scriptures, and maybe you should turn uh, to a few. Turn to Romans. Uh, I'm sorry, Galatians three. But while you're turning there, I want to I want you to read. An, I want to read you another one, and how that the words of the scripture are synonymous with the mind and the purpose of God. The words of the scriptures are synonymous. They mean the same thing. They, they, they come at the same time as the mind and the purpose of God. Romans 9 verse 17 says, And the scripture saith unto Pharaoh. Now we never, we, I never thought about how that, that is kind of a unique way to look at the scriptures, but the scripture saith to Pharaoh, Even for this purpose have I raised thee up. And this is when God was uh, working with the Egyptians um, in releasing his people. Now, in Galatians 3, verse 8, And the Scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the heathen through faith, preached before the gospel unto Abraham, saying, In thee shall all nations be blessed. So it it almost seems as if there is something going on um, beyond the text. If, if, if I may say it this way, and, and I think, I think you'll bear with, I think you, we can bear that out. So the scripture foresees something. So there's, there's more going on than just what is written. And then down in verse 22, the scripture hath concluded all under sin. 
So the scripture almost has a, a has a, a mind and it can think. So what I'm trying to get to you, trying to get to you is, is that the scripture is rooted in the character of God. The scripture is synonymous with the mind and the purpose of God. And here's another one. And I have given this to you just recently before, and I don't remember why what I was preaching. But this is in Hebrews 4, verses 12 and 13. For the word of God is quick and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the dividing asunder of soul and spirit and of the joints and marrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. Neither is there any creature that is not manifest in his sight, but all things are naked and open unto the eyes of him with whom we have to do. So there is a personality here in this passage. What we are dealing with here is not so much just a book or just a text. The emphasis here is on God being a discerner and on seeing what and God seeing the motives of our hearts. There is nothing that is not laid out clearly or masked in any way. His sight beholds everything. So what we are talking about is not so much the printed page as it is the spoken word and the utterance and the reason and the intellect of God. What I'm trying to tell you is that the Bible is not self-referencing. It is God-breathed. Its source is God itself. So we don't just test the Bible by... Um, we don't just believe the Bible by what it says, but we believe the Bible because it is the record of what God has said. And I think that um, that can be verified historically. Um, and But I want to think, first of all, I want to think about the advantage of it being written rather than oral. When Jesus said, it is written, he wasn't just referencing a piece of paper or a scroll somewhere, but he was referencing the where, the very words of God, but they had been recorded. So he could say, it is written. And I think we can understand that it is better written than, than oral because when it is written, the record is easily and accurately transmitted. Paul wrote so that after he dies, people could recall. I'm sorry, Peter wrote so that after he dies, people could recall what he wanted them to know. Moreover, I will endeavor that you may be after my decease, that you may be able after my decease to have these things always in remembrance. So what he did was he made sure that people could remember what he wanted them to know. So he wrote it down. John recorded his gospel so that we could believe. He recorded it. He didn't just tell it to someone. John 20. And many other signs truly did Jesus in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written that ye might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing ye might have life through his name. So we see the, the value of writing what God has said. So it's not, it's not, um, it is not just a, um, a text that is self-referencing, but it is the record of what God has spoken. It is rooted in who God is and in his character. And I hope that we can accept that God can preserve what he wants us to know and what to read. And also, when it is written, it makes it historically attestable. There are more than 5,000 ancient Greek manuscripts there are old manuscripts in Latin and other old languages. It is, the, the Bible as we have it, is the, is the um, best, has the best historical record of any of the ancient texts.
better than Socrates and Plato, better than anybody else. There are more uh, New Testament manuscripts by far than any other ancient writings. There's over 24,000 ancient New Testament manuscripts in existence. And I think that's a miracle. I think it speaks to God taking care of it, but, but also it's the simple matter, the simple fact of the matter is it's historically attestable. And I think that's very valuable. We can accept it because it's historically verifiable. F.F. Bruce, the late F.F. Bruce, said there is no body of ancient literature in the world which enjoys such a wealth of good textual attestation as the New Testament. And I think we should bless God for that. I'd like for you to think a little bit about um, some things that I believe are evidences of inspiration. And this um, is perhaps more of a, a teaching session than it is just a... Um, um, Bible lesson, if you want to say it that way. But I think the, the first evidence of inspiration that I think about is the prophecies of the Old Testament being fulfilled in the New. And we, we, we looked at those in Sunday school um, so often uh, in the last few Sundays. There was so many. Jesus said this, think, that I am, think not that I am come to destroy the law or the prophets. I am not come to destroy, but to fulfill. For verily I say unto you, till heaven and earth pass, one jot or one tittle shall in no wise pass from the law till all be fulfilled. So whatever, whatever was written was, was being fulfilled in Jesus Christ. Not one jot and one tittle was going to pass from it um, till all was fulfilled. One very clear and dramatic instance, I think, is Daniel's interpretation of Nebuchadnezzar's dream of the image of the of the man that was um, destroyed by this stone that was hewn out of the mountain. And Daniel very specifically tells King Nebuchadnezzar what is going to happen. First of all, you, O king, he says, are this head of gold. And after you is going to become another kingdom. And this is going to be the Medes and the Persians. And then after that is the, is the Greeks. And after that is the Romans. He doesn't, he doesn't tell us, he doesn't tell, um, King Nebuchadnezzar all these different kings, but he does tell us he told the king how this is all going to come to pass. And it's so we can see it in history. And he also has the vision of the of the ram and the he goat. And there he tells us who these people are going to be. And, and it was so in history. And we see that there is something happening here. I think it's a it's a. Um, it's an evidence of inspiration. The prophecy of the 70 weeks. Things like that. And then Matthew 1 and 2. We looked at, we looked at those, the, the details that surrounded Jesus' birth, um, the virgin birth, the sojourn into Egypt, the destruction of the children by Herod, his home in Nazareth. All these things were fulfilled, um, in his birth. Then there was, um, different things fulfilled in his death, the way his disciples cowered away from him as he was tried and killed, the way he was taken like a common thief, his betrayal by Judas for money. His being exercised, his being executed alongside criminals, the soldiers gambling for his garments, his side being pierced rather than his legs broken, his cry of my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? All these things were foretold by the prophets hundreds of years before they occurred. I think it's an evidence of inspiration.
that God breathed these things into. Um, and these prophets were just the instrument. They were just, they were plucked by the divine plectrum and they, they played this, 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 uh, this music out. All right. Secondly, evidence of inspiration is the accurate assessment of the human conditions. One of the amazing things about the scriptures is how that it was written by about 40 different authors over a period of around 1600 years. These writers range from kings to fishermen, from prophets to shepherds, to some whose identity we don't know. But their styles range from Judaic law to history to biographies of men and women to eyewitness accounts of the life of Jesus to theology to a final vision of the things that will happen in the future of the victory of Jesus and his followers over the legions of the devil. It was written in different continents. It was written in Europe. It was written in Asia, perhaps even in Africa. I'm not sure. But it takes on a very wide scope of human experience in it, but it places all people in the same condition, and that is that they need salvation. It has an accurate assessment of the human conditions. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. It places no tribe or people above the other, but calls all people everywhere to repentance. I'm not going to turn there, but if we read the last half of the book of, if we read the last half of the, of Romans 1, where we see how that God will give people over to a reprobate mind, and we read that, and we, we look around and we say, well, yeah, this makes sense. Or we read Romans 3 in 10 to 18, where he talks about, all the things that people will be involved in and the condition of man. And it's almost as if we're looking at that and we're imagining this in our mind and we, we, we lift our eyes and we look around and we say, yeah, that's exactly how it is. I think that it's accurate portrayal of the human condition and it's universal call to repentance is a um, evidence of inspiration. And then the way that the scriptures portrays its heroes with all their flaws is evidence of divine inspiration. Noah, Abraham, David, Solomon, and the apostles were all shown to us, are all shown to us, be very human, failing in ways that shock us. And we try to make ways around it and we just can't. We can't justify Noah's drunkenness we can't justify Abraham's lying and we can't justify David's adultery and Solomon's um, debauchery with all his women and his girlfriends we can't justify those things but the scriptures give it to us in the just the hard truth of the matter see it's only in novels and autobiographies that the characters are flawless even the very incarnate Son of God had to deal with his humanity. He wept. He groaned in his spirit. He agonized in, his gar in the garden. He had to surrender his will to the will of the Father. So I believe that this accurate portrayal of, the, um, of its heroes are evidence of divine inspiration. And then its unique message, I believe, gives us evidence of divine inspiration. The golden rule. Think about that a little bit. As you would therefore that men should do to you, do ye even so to them likewise. Now I read recently in a, um, I didn't know the, um, the, the name of the man and I can't think right now, but
but it was a, a little book that was put out by a scroll publishing on the golden rule. And I read, I read in there that the golden rule is a popular theme in most religions that were developed after Christianity. Before Christianity, there were similar thoughts expressed, but it was always said in the negative. All right. So the idea is here is is that the religions that predate, predated Christianity said, don't do something that you wouldn't want someone to do to you. All right. Christianity was the first that said, do something that you would like someone to do to you. See, there is a vast difference between not doing something nasty and doing something kind. It's the difference between not taking advantage of and helping. It's the difference between not saying anything and encouraging. It's the difference between the priest and the Levite and the Good Samaritan. If the scriptures were man-inspired, they probably wouldn't call us to the high standard that Jesus does. Be ye therefore perfect, even as your Father which is in heaven is perfect. The human impossibility of living the life that God calls us to attests to its divine inspiration. And then the historical and geographical and cultural details in the scriptures subjected to scrutiny. If you don't want a piece of literature to be falsifiable, if you don't want it to be able to be tested, that's what falsifiable means. What you do is you avoid detail. You fill it with fortune cookie sayings and nice platitudes. But when details are provided, we can see if they match what we know from history. See, if I were writing the Gospels today, I would call the characters Jake and Bob and Jerry. But if, and, and so when, when you would test my account against what we know about scripture, you would say, this isn't what they called the, the names. So there's, there's a flaw here. But when, when the details given in Scripture coincide what we know about history and the cultural and geographical details, and then it proves it passed the, the test. So the um, historical and geographical and cultural details of the Scripture uh, give evidence of inspiration. And then it's transformative power. Romans 1, verse 16 I'm not ashamed of the gospel. I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. For it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone that believeth, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. So it's the power of God unto salvation to everyone. There is a transformative power in the gospel. I don't know if it's proper to quote a, uh, an atheist in church or not, but I'm going to. Paul, Paul quoted some of the ancient uh, heathen poets, so I think I may... Uh, quote a contemporary um, atheist. Matthew Paris is a British journalist. He was born in South Africa, but he lived outside of Africa for many years, and he heard about some of the things that, that were happening in Africa, about the things that, the effects that Christian evangelism was having in Africa. He wrote this in the London Times, and this is still, uh, this is still up currently. He says this, I went to see this work. It inspired <clears throat> I went to see this work. Now remember this is an atheist talking. This isn't me. 
It inspired me, renewed my flagging faith and development charities. But traveling in Malawi, that's a, that's a country on the east side of Africa, refreshed another belief too. One that I've been trying to banish all my life. But an observation that I've been unable to avoid since my African childhood. It confounds my ideological beliefs, stubbornly refuses to fit my worldview, and has embarrassed my growing belief that there is no God. Now a confirmed atheist. I've become convinced of the enormous contribution that Christian evangelism makes in Africa, sharply distinct from the work of secular NGOs, government projects, and international aid efforts. These alone will not do. Education and training alone will not do. In Africa, Christianity changes people's hearts. It brings a spiritual transformation. The rebirth is real. The change is good. Can you imagine those words coming from an atheist? He doesn't know what to do with it. His article ends with, removing Christian evangelism from the African equation may leave the continent at the mercy of a malign fusion of Nike, the witch doctor, the mobile phone, and the machete. I think that's an astounding testimony of the power of the gospel. It speaks of the inspiration. It speaks of something that comes from somewhere besides man himself. And then uh, the last one that I'd like to give you is perhaps the most important one is the evidence of a changed life. And this has to do also with, with the one that I just just spoke to you, but not out there, but but personally. And that is the new walk that is typical of the believer. To identify with Christ in the resurrection by walking in newness of life, like it talks about in Romans 6, is a testimony of the resurrection, is a testimony to the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. Of all this, of all the claims in scripture, perhaps the one that is most astounding and the one that is, uh, the one that you, you can't argue away is the one that says that Jesus rose from the dead. It is verifiable historically, and I am grateful for that. But the amazing thing is, is that God calls us to testify to that claim by the life we live. In essence, he is calling us to testify to the inspiration of scripture by living the life of the resurrected Christ. Now I read you a, um, a passage at the beginning in Second Peter where he says that um, we have also a more sure word of prophecy whereunto ye do well that ye take heed. Now what's this more sure word of prophecy? Other translations give this as the word of prophecy made more sure we have the word of the prophets made more sure. Now, how can you make something more certain that is sure and that it is forever settled in heaven? Does this imply that we weren't quite so sure after all? Actually, I, I don't think that that's what it's saying, but we have this sure word is reinforced and it is established deeper yet. Perhaps it's a little bit like the foolishness of God that we read about in, in uh, 1 Corinthians 2. The foolishness of God being wiser than men. It's a figure of speech, perhaps. 
But I, I like to refer to uh, this passage in Hebrews 6, where God, uh, where he, I'll just read the passage. Uh, Hebrews 6, verses 16 to 20. For men verily swear by the greater, and an oath for confirmation is to them an end of all strife, wherein God, willing more abundantly to show unto the heirs of promise the immutability of his counsel, confirmed it by an oath, that by two immutable things in which it was impossible for God to lie, we might have a strong consolation who have fled for refuge to lay hold upon the hope set before us, which hope we have as an anchor for the soul, both sure and steadfast, and which entereth into that within the within the veil, whither the forerunner is for us entered, even Jesus made a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. So, what the Hebrew writer is saying is the old covenant, the old covenant was established by a promise and then by an oath. Now on God's part, the oath was redundant. It was saying something again that didn't need to be said on God's part. But it says that he swear this oath for a confirmation to the heirs of the promise. He did it for our sakes. He swore this oath, not for his own sake, because he needed a uh, something um, more weight on, on his side to make sure that he accomplishes it. Now he did it for our sake. So the New Testament can be grounded and it can be settled in our hearts. Not that we, can, not that we're fearful that God won't do His part, but now that we can accept it because we see it confirmed yet again. Now we accept it because of the covenant. We see it. We, we can accept it because of the oath and we can accept it by the fulfillment of both of those, the blood of Jesus Christ, his oath, his covenant and his blood. How shall we respond? If the Old Testament law, which was given by angels, was sure, and a person that dared to violate it received a due punishment, how much greater is our responsibility to accept this gospel that was given to us by Jesus himself, recorded by the evangelists and confirmed by the apostles? It leaves us at once in a place of great privilege, but also of fearsome accountability. See that you refuse not him that speaketh, Hebrews 12. For if they escape not who refused him that spake on earth, how much more shall we not escape if we turn away from him that speaketh from heaven, whose voice then shook the earth, but now he hath promised, saying, Yet once more, I shake not the earth only, but also heaven. And this word yet once more signifieth the removing of those things that are shaken and of those things that are made, that of those things which cannot be shaken may remain. Wherefore we receiving a kingdom which cannot be moved, let us have grace whereby we may be whereby we may serve God acceptably with reverence and godly fear for our God is a consuming fire. Let's kneel for prayer.